Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is NIDIG. NIDIG's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using NIDIG, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out NIDIG as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I'm sitting down today with Miss Kiara Bickers, who's a sysadmin at Blockstream and the author of a fantastic book. I'm really glad we're doing this interview because it's been on my reading list for a while, but I just kept uh, rolling it back because sometimes you've read so much about Bitcoin, you think you know it all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But book is titled Bitcoin Clarity. And I think you did a great job, like I was saying to you offline before, tying in the fundamental aspects to the more meta aspects and it's delivered in a very compelling way. So Kiara, welcome. Hey, thanks. Yeah, no, I'm glad you see it that way. I think for me, I got interested in Bitcoin because of those philosophical aspects, but because I just got roped into Bitcoin early on, I just ended up on the developer track. And that really put me in the position to like write this book and combine the two. Yeah. Well, developer track is probably a good place to start because you, you, it seems like more of the technically minded people saw the light first, you know, like I had this central banking kind of lens background, but I never, it took me longer to get to Bitcoin as the answer to that. Whereas if you had the technical background, it seems like you guys were early to the party. (laughs) Well, I think, um, like the first chapter of the book, like understanding why Bitcoin is trustless, like really sets up for people to understand that that's truly what got me to finally understand like how Bitcoin was something different and didn't rely on a third party. I think there's so many buzzwords and not just Bitcoin, but all of crypto in general, Mm. that's like, it's really easy to just get swept up in buzzwords. And um, I was just talking to a a coworker of mine today and he was telling me like, you know, like getting into Bitcoin today is not an IQ test, but like getting into Bitcoin in the early days sort of was because- It was, um, yeah, there were a lot less resources back then. So unless you really understood like how to code, like I I learned, I tried to learn about Bitcoin by learning how to code, um, which I talk a little bit about in the book and on podcasts and stuff like that. But um, that was kind of a hopeless endeavor. So I wouldn't necessarily say, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the learn to code thing. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, if, If anything, there was one thing that I thought was really cool, which is like the original Satoshi code, which is like, um, if you know basically any amount of programming, like you'd probably be able to read that code, and it's it's much more um, like it's it's a much smaller code base than mm. the existing Bitcoin Core code base. So that was that was really cool when I discovered that. Interesting. I haven't even heard of that actually. What's it called? You said 
Um, it's just called like original Satoshi like code. Uh, I think it, it's a it's a couple of repos on GitHub. Um, oh. But that's where um, like I said, like the first chapter of the book, which I'm, we were kind of talking about right now is the idea of the blockchain as a time chain. Satoshi mm. had actually written in a comment in that original code. So it's like written in C++. It's only a couple files. And like, if you know a little bit about C++ or, or other languages that are similar, you'd be able to understand the full thing. Whereas for me, when I was going to the Bitcoin core code, which is like what everyone runs when they run full nodes, mm. uh, that was just like, I don't know if there's a single person who can who understands the full stack of the code. So it's, right. it's a beast. Yeah. That's very cool. So you mentioned uh, that it was the trust aspect of Bitcoin that, was your aha moment? Was it the aspect yeah, I think of so. trust minimization, I guess, as you described? Well, well, I like I like to think that there were like a bunch of aha moments. Like I really, I think like a lot of people, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought it was a joke. But that was like in like 2012 or something like that, like very, very early on. So um, I was interested in like the Liberty stuff, the Ron Paul stuff that was all happening at that time. Um, but it, it wasn't like, when I understood that like Bitcoin was capped, that was like one big aha moment from just like a, like a scarcity and sound money point of view. But when I actually started to get past just an econ economic understanding into like a developer understanding, mm. really seeing how the blockchain has its own internal sense of time. And like that's mm. it, that, that innovation was a big aha moment for me because like when someone says trustless, like uh, I'll put it another way, like um, Bitcoin is the way that you can send money securely over the insecure internet. And mm. like, if you can, that that sentence, right? The, it's a, the secure protocol over the insecure internet, like that is great. But then when you actually understand like the, how it works, you can kind of believe it a little bit more. And that's where the trustlessness thing comes into play. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, so you, yeah, you, and it ties to money as well, because, you know, Zabo's work on money is like, we always favored the most, trust minimized asset effectively to conduct trade with one another. So it's interesting how it's, it all comes down to trust, right. And both the internet kind of sense of Bitcoin and the monetary sense of Bitcoin. Um, trust think, is such a contentious word because it's like for, for people in business, they view trust as like a good thing. But when you look at like systems and security, trust is like, an, it's, it's more of a dependency and a risk. Whereas right. like it's, it, the meaning is literally opposite in business. So, so it can yes. be kind of confusing for people who are like new and trying to understand like the language of crazy security nerds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You lay that out well in your book too, that it's, yeah. Trust typically in your mind sounds like a positive attribute, like a good thing to have. You want to have that. But when it comes to systems architecture, you don't want to need to trust anyone, right? And nothing fallible. Uh, I, you, you made the difference between, was it risk and consequence? Is that how you broke it down? Yeah. Yeah, actually, so I learned this from a rock climber and I thought it was like a beautiful mental model. It, the idea of like, you know, if you're going to climb, if you're, if you're climbing a, a rock wall, if you're going bouldering, like you could do a really hard climb that's not that far off the ground. So like, you know, the the, 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 the actual effort is difficult, but the consequence is very low. Mm -hmm. Or you could do like a thousand foot climb, like a free, a free climb with, a, with no ropes, but like it's very easy you know, that is like, okay, the difficulty is low, but then the consequence is very high. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing is also, is, is a very useful mental model for systems in general. It's like, okay, what's, what's the actual context versus like, what's the risk? The risk mm -hmm. meaning the probability that something will occur. Yeah. And then the consequence being the actual cost or damage incurred. Correct. Yeah. Right. And that's just like, 
you have to, that's being so specific with language. Whereas like, you usually don't need to be that specific and just like general yes. conversation about things. Yes, yes. But like when you're talking about systems, you have to like really define all of your terms. Yeah. Especially money, which is the most important system. Right. Um, and like when you, to bring it back to money, instead of just talking about like, you know, the technical side of it, it's like, if you have some sort of, um, if you have some sort of hack in this money, like you're, you could potentially actually inflate the currency that everyone's using. Right. So the, yes. the consequence would be extremely high if there was ever a major flaw in Bitcoin. Yes, yes, yes. And then, so is just talking about systems architecture in general, is it really focused on that expected value calculation where you're multiplying risk times consequence to get, you know, I don't know if you could actually sign in like a numeric value to any of those things. It's more of just like, like, a like, yeah, and people do try and like when you can, you can actually, you know, pay multiple security companies to, to give you a risk assessment mm -hmm. and they will assign a, a certain value to this, but it, it's, it's pretty relative. Generally yeah. speaking, like the more dependencies you have, like, especially if you're not managing them, like the riskier that is. And, you know, there's some organizations like, especially in traditional finance where you, you just can't allow that. Like you have, mm -hmm. you have to control the operating system. You have to know and manage every single dependency. Mm -hmm. So the standard is really, really high and Bitcoin needs to be higher than that. Right. That's an interesting way to look at it. Maybe is it so we want a money that has the least dependencies built into it, right? You or the least right. counterparty risk is a finance guy. That's might right. Say. And and like um, the one dependency that that most all software relies on is that those third party clocks and the mm -hmm. third party clocks, you know, that that being like a central point of failure sort of thing. Yes. Um, hasn't happened, but you know, I think I think that was like a I don't know if it was a concern in Y two K, but I think it might have been. Yeah, for sure. And that um, among a certain, a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. So one of the things you did that was interesting in your book were this black box structuring where it's almost like you're, you're zoomed out on Bitcoin and you're zooming into different parts to describe it. But to, to do that, to increase or decrease your resolution, sometimes you kind of just had to have the audience like, just assume what I'm saying here. This is the input. This is the output. I'll describe to you later what the in between is. Um, so right. I want to I want to read this little excerpt just to kind of start us off. It said, "Quote: Human pattern recognition is exceptionally good at using black boxes. We're all used to doing this because we're surrounded by black boxes all the time. We can't see someone else's intent. If you don't understand why someone is doing something or acting in a certain way." You can look at the consequences of their actions, which are the outputs of the system, and infer their intent from those consequences. So you're taking a very, I think in the psychological domain, they'd call this like a behaviorist viewpoint, where you can't necessarily know the intent or motivation exactly, but you can just observe the behavior and the consequences. And you, you're doing that with a systems lens on Bitcoin. Like here's kind of what goes in and what comes <laughs> yeah. out. And then I'll describe to you later what's happening in between. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm trying to use an example that, that people can relate to. Right. And like, yeah, that, that example, I think maybe even lawyers or, or people in, 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 um, in that, uh, I don't know, you know, industry could kind of relate to a little bit also psychologists. Um, but everyone, I think another analogy that I use is the, the idea of a car. Like we, I don't know how my car works. I've never mm -hmm. built an engine. But I do know that when I step on the gas, like oil and air, like combined, and then I, it, it moves me forward, right? Like that's yeah. enough. That's all I need to know. 
but but generally it's like a black box. So yes. um, that's like a very common engineering term that is so beneficial for the average person to understand. It's just so useful because one of the things that happens when we start to talk about complex systems is there's just like this massive tendency to devolve into like trying to talk about different layers simultaneously, which is like not productive at all. Mm. Right. So if we can just agree on the level that we're going to speak about the thing. So it's like, we're going to agree that we're going to talk about Bitcoin in the political sense and like the regulatory right. sense, or we're, right. we're going to agree that we're going to talk about Bitcoin at the smart contracts level or the networking level. Right. That that's like different layers of the stack. And if I don't define, if I don't say that up front, or especially when I'm trying to explain something new to a user, because that's the target audience for the book and, Maybe I shouldn't say new, but someone who's trying to understand the technical space. Yeah. Um, I think that that black box thing is really helpful. Just say, hey, I know that you know a lot about this whole system, but let's just talk about this one part for now. Interesting. Yeah. So you're defining, I guess, the bounds or the context of your description. So, and, and this is interesting too, because not only does technology, to your point, it evolves in layers. So you need to be very specific yes. about which layer you're talking about. But this is, I mean, this is biological too, right? You have to talk about yes. life even evolves in layer. We can almost say technology is an extension of life in a lot of ways. That What do they call it? The genotype is your DNA, I think. And then your phenotype is the is expression your, of the gene, right? Yeah, your physical expression. But then they talk about your extended phenotype, which are like the tools you use in the environment. So, Oh, that one's new to me. There's Yeah, there's just layers, right? It's just layers upon <laughs> layers. System I, I layers. I, you, I I use an example because the idea of systems thinking can be kind of new to people, but I use that example in the book as well. Like I talk about the idea of like, okay, if you're going to talk about a human, like what level are you talking about a human at? Like, are you mm -hmm. talking about it at the cellular level, at yes. the you know, the tissue level, the, the organ level? Mm -hmm. Like usually we're talking about it on like the human to human, the consciousness yes. level. But then, so it's just like de facto, like we all understand that. Um, it would be kind of weird to be talking about us in the context of like the atomic level. Like that wouldn't really make sense. So it's just like always implied, but with Bitcoin, it's just not that clear, right? Like you need to be like, yes. big, like the, the idea of smart contracts and Bitcoin means an entirely different thing to almost anyone that you talk to outside of the like specific Bitcoin space. Right. Um, like people who, who want to like write business contracts on the blockchain have a totally different idea of what a contract means. So it's just, it's way too easy to get slipped up in terms, which is like, what was really challenging about, about writing this and like trying to make all the mental models be the tools that, that allow me to like unfold things in different layers. Yes, yes, yes. So especially when explaining a new system, precision of terminology is critical and it's critical also to understand what l layer you are in. Otherwise you might analogize it to something else and get confused. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So then another thing, you know, you're talking about people, even in antiquity, we thought like the common think it's common to think today that people of the past were not scientifically minded whatsoever, but in fact, they were scrutinizing the black boxes all around them. I think you made the point that Plato thought light emanated from the eye. That's right. A Aristotle. Yeah. I'm just like a huge history nerd. So like, I love studying Greek history and I, I really love trying to read the most original source that I can yeah. and I can't read Greek. So like, that's a huge deficit and you know, you're losing all this information when you go from Greek to Latin to then English. So it's just like a huge bummer for me. Um, but what, from, from what I can understand of the closest I can get to original sources. Yeah. yeah like nobody really understood what light was back in the day. Right. So like yes. the sun was like this huge mystery. 
Light yeah. was this huge mystery. They didn't understand photons. They didn't understand energy. They didn't understand yeah. like the relationship between mass and like all that shit is so cool to us, but, but we maybe we take it for granted. So it's not even that cool anymore. But like, yeah, to them, it was like, what is this thing? Like this black box and it was, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years of playing electricity to really understand like what light was yeah. um, and the, and the duality of it. But um, yeah, no, I, I think that that was scrutinizing black boxes for sure. Yeah. So the, I mean, it's not that they were any less intelligent than us whatsoever. It's just that the, they had different black boxes than us, right? We've had more accumulated knowledge and different systems for understanding the world that turned some of these black boxes into white boxes, I guess, that just weren't available back then. Yeah. And they had a different tool set for, for getting at these boxes, right? Like sometimes I think about just to the extent, like what, how the actual language affected their ability to, right. to yeah. play with these concepts, because they were trying to talk about light at a time where like those words didn't exist. Yeah. And from what I, from what I could understand, like the meaning of light also meant like beautiful or to be admired. So yeah. like they were, imp- they were trying to use this concept of like beauty to impress upon their, 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 their their understanding of light, which is like incredibly challenging. And like, you can, you can feel this when we're talking about, um, you know, certain aspects of physics or certain cutting edge sciences, like we literally don't have the words for this. So we're like struggling. It's like when you're pushing the boundary of like what we currently know, our current, our current, uh, I guess, boundaries of understanding. Yeah. I think they call this, I want to say it's the wharf saper hypothesis or linguistic relativity where the actual language you are thinking in influences the thoughts you can create. And they give all these different examples. Yes. Uh, you know, ro- romance languages give you all these different sh- um, gradations of emotional words that more reductionist language, I might be using the wrong term here, but like German, Germanic and English would be more precise reductionist languages. Which, which by the way, that was actually intentional as well. Like a lot of the development of the English language was intended, it was happening in around the same time as the early scientific revolution. Mm. Uh, the same people involved in writing the, the great plays, you know, in the, in the uh, I guess you call them the dark ages, right? Mm. Um, that or early renaissance or whatever, like th- those English plays were the, the same people who wrote those are the same ones who started to push at the, the Enlightenment era thinking and, and all the, the different experiments that were going on. And in comparison to like French, which was like the people who developed that language were really trying to make it beautiful for poetry's sake. Ah, uh, interesting. Uh, so it, it totally different, right? And and yeah. what I'm one of the problems I'm trying to figure out is like how come the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution happened where it happened with the people that it happened with, and, and primarily like in English and German. Interesting. Um, and the, anyway, that's a super fascinating thing to me. But um, yeah, oh. basically, I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, me, to me as well, uh, there's this other, I've been talking to a psychologist named John Bravaki recently. He has mm-hmm. this phenomenal YouTube series, which if you're a, a geek on Greek history and philosophy, he, I mean, you'll love it. It's like, <laughs> I think he probably has 50 hours, five, zero hours of content. And he's just a brilliant guy, but he makes this point. He uses the term psychotechnology which I had never heard before. It talks about like literacy and numeracy being the most common forms, um, but how actual changes in that technology, it's like human software in a way. So we've had these software updates That's throughout right. history. And uh, he talks about the axial revolution being one of the main, major ones where you know Plato and, and Aristotle laid out new psychotechnologies like rhetoric. Rhetoric was a big one. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and, and when uh, we look at the printing press, for instance, in the 1500s, the reason it was such a big deal is because it accelerated the proliferation of literacy and numeracy. So it was a distribution technology for psychotechnologies, which is just like crazy. It's um, crazy. And when you look into like the economics of all this stuff too, like Europe had largely rejected the use of paper by, mm-hmm. because it was like a Muslim technology. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the printing press came into Europe that we were like, okay, I guess we'll use paper now because it yes. was like, there was actual use case. Right. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's endlessly fascinating. And like trying to understand like the origins of capitalism and, and even socialism to some extent, because they're yeah. all kind of percolating at that time. Uh, it's, it, it's really difficult. It's, it's such a fun thing to wrap my head around, but yeah, yeah I'll have to check that guy out. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned Europe rejecting the use of paper. They also, I wrote some about this in the number zero on Bitcoin. They rejected the number zero or the Hindu Arabic numeral system. Of course. Yeah. They resisted it for a long time because it was, it was yeah. ideologically Again, misaligned with the church. Yeah. <laughs> it, it didn't jive because the church had this model of the universe. that was finite. Earth was at the middle. You know, the church was dominant over the earth. Therefore, it was dominant in the universe. And just the existence of zero, which seems so silly to us now, or like, clearly there's, that's a number, but back then it literally shattered the whole thing because it implied infinity mm. and infinity did not fit into their, uh, I guess, worldview or uh, narrative, basically they're using, right. To say the church runs things. So very fascinating how I believe. Yeah. I'm trying to think back the guy, I think who like really popularized infinity. I'm forgetting his name, but I think he was from the Netherlands. So it was it sort of like it timed with the uh, and that's the, where capitalism uh, the, started right right it was like sort of the protestant rejection of of the catholic church because it was the catholic church that was really keeping everyone um out of everything you know you yes. know they wouldn't even yeah. like let you read the bible and anything other than latin so yeah it's yes. um not that i necessarily agree with all the protestants but i'm saying you know that that it, there, it's not a coincidence that the enlightenment happened out of at the same time as the the protestant movement was happening it was because that was the time that you were finally not only allowed to to do science but it was like ordained by a king that you could yes um, and we yeah, had the so, software of it so it's almost like the enlightenment was as uh, widespread implementation of a new psychotechnology. Like people are waking up like, Oh, I can directly access the word of God using literacy. You know, I can communicate right. and talk and it's just so, and then that, you know, percolates outward into institutional change because all of a sudden yeah. it's like the church is not relevant to the person that can it, just read the Bible directly. When, when I look at that time period, when those, the religious wars in Europe were happening and like 30 year wars and all these other wars, it's like the technology or the software that everyone was running was so heavily focused on like a specific version, a very narrow definition of what Christianity was mm. that like, of course they were going to fight about it. But then they, once they started fighting about it for years and years and years, and they just kept fractioning off into new versions of, of be, what it meant to be Christian. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, after like what, 30, 60 years, I guess finally got sick of it. And that was like when they're like, okay, we're not, it's not a good idea to fight about these nuances. We need to stop because it was just like horrible. Like, you you know, you fight your entire life. You see your sons fight their entire lives yeah. and eventually they were sick of it. They, I, that's their way of like purging that version of the operating system. Crazy. And then once that, maybe even just doing the update, right? So you do the update by having the wars and then yeah. now you can kind of live in some semblance of peace and actually pursue things like science. Yeah. 
crazy which all science means is like to pursue things that were interesting (laughs) yeah which is not what science means now now science is credentialism so totally different (laughs) yeah 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 it used to be this natural philosophy in a way and the other thing that's interesting there is that so the software update that leads to protestant reformation the protestant work ethic there's a lot of writing out there that's saying that was the basis of capitalism it's like the fact that there was all of a sudden this this ethic instilled in people to defer gratification, defer consumption, work hard. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to pin my finger on this. I'm trying to figure it out, but like from what I can tell, like the the socialism side being you know as the rejection of capitalism, it mm-hmm. seems like the origins of socialism can maybe been be pinned to the the French Revolution, mm-hmm. where but it, they were rejecting private property, but not capitalism because capitalism didn't exist. Right. Private property was like, they're rejecting the King. Mm. So there's like, the, but if you look on Wikipedia, like all of these socialists that were around in the 1700s are labeled anarcho communists, which is like, what? Like they're, they're, <laughs> they're basically, <laughs> they're like labeled as communists when communism didn't really exist yet. Like Marx hadn't even written anything. Huh. So it's, it, I don't even know if Marx was born yet. So it, it was, um, yeah, it's really hard to pin my finger of like when capitalism started, because it's like, how are you defining capitalism? Like, right. okay, like free trade and property rights, but for who? Is it when men were allowed to have property rights? Is it when yeah, women were allowed to have right, property rights? Right, right. Is it like, I think the the reason why pe- a lot of people look at that Protestant Reformation is because that was when, well, a whole bunch of people died because of the plague and like, mm-hmm. you know, earlier than that. And then also you know, pushing out the Catholic church gave people some ownership of things. So that's my like very rudimentary understanding of the time period right now. Yeah. But uh, I think that's about right. Um, yeah. 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 And it's to your point there, this concept, which is really a social construct, sort of similar to money in a way of property. It didn't just emerge as like, Oh, like we take it for granted today, especially in the Western world, you just go buy a house or buy a car and no one's going to steal it from you. You know, you've got a document that says it's yours, but it right. took a long, it was a long, painful course to get there where property used to be just the monarch had all the property and you worked for the monarch. Then there were, you know, you sort of had some property rights and some things, but not other things. And then there were still certain. And like all of the businesses started off as monopolies. Yes. It's like uh the Dutch East whatever India company yeah. like all of those major companies were like the king said that you're allowed to exist and no one can compete with you. Right. And then we wonder why like they're the world's most rich like companies it's because like they literally took the they had the monopoly of force behind them. Yeah. Um for you know whichever kingdom they're a part of but um how you actually transfer that into America is where it's like super interesting because mm-hmm. the colonialists came over with money, right? And then they started companies, but it, mm-hmm. but there were no kings ever in in America. Mm-hmm. So it's the the transfer of wealth from from Europe into America is a really interesting one to to look back at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a lot of the influence on the American Constitution was drawn from the Magna Carta as I understand it, right? Like life, liberty, and property. I know we perverted it to pursuit of happiness here, but. Um, oh, yep. I heard that one too. Yeah. It's just interesting that to, and for me, it bridged the gap to, okay, we are 
experiencing the second order effects of technology and psychotechnology. Like that's what these huge revolutions and like, Oh, the awakening. It's like, it's because we installed new software and then we, you know, a bunch of people died and then there were new people, basically a whole new operating (laughs) system on humans. It's a crazy way to think about it, but it's so fascinating. Uh, It makes you wonder too, what black boxes we're operating in today. You know, we talked about light earlier, but we still don't know what light is really, you know, there's this wave particle duality. If you get into quantum what is that mechanics, answer? Like, what it just that tells mean? you, like, it's like, we don't know what light is. I can tell you what it's like to interact with light, but that's it. So it's, it's, it's humbling, right? Like, it's humbling. All of it is interrelated with mass. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Like, so one of the things that I use in the book to structure it is not just the idea of systems thinking, but there's a hierarchy uh, visual that I have in there because the whole thing's super illustrated. But mm-hmm. um, I have this idea of like raw information is the base of the hierarchy. And then you mm-hmm. have like knowledge, which asks how questions. And mm-hmm. then you have wisdom, which asks why questions. Mm-hmm. And there's just like an infinite number of why questions that we just, eh, you do not get access to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like human not allowed to interact with that level of information. Like, so, so one of the things, you know, trying to bring back to Bitcoin a little bit is like when I was trying to understand Bitcoin, I was asking a lot of why questions like, why did people build this? Why does this exist? Why are things like this? And everyone would always answer with like, as if I had asked a how question, mm. so like, well, this is the way full nodes and miners work. And like, this is the way the financial system works. Cause that's like our default mode of answering mm. things because why questions, why questions are just really hard. You know, like, why is this sky blue? Like, no one can really yeah. answer that. They can tell you how it is, but not why. Yeah. And it's to, for natural philosophers, I think that can be a very frustrating thing. <laughs> we just yeah. have to stay in our lane. Yeah. The why questions trying to peer into the black box, right? What's the principle or intention or motivation behind this thing? I think that's like the spark of curiosity that gets you looking and like, Ultimately, if the if all you can do is shake the black box and then see what's actually how it works, like it's sort of like a disappointing level of satisfaction because you're like, oh, I know, (laughs) you're like, I guess I know that light is this like wave and particle thing, but like that wasn't really what I wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, right. You you wanted to know like deeper, like at the core, like what is the universe up to? Right. Like like what are we up to? (laughs) I don't know. You know, it's like it's really challenging to observe myself. Yes. Uh, I think you did. I want to read another excerpt here because you bridge these worlds nicely too, between like, I guess, artistry and philosophy and science in a way. So it says, you said, quote, the physicist ask where symmetry exists and how it behaves, while the artist ask how they can recreate it, mirror it. If we could conceive of it, a complete study of symmetry would have to include both the sciences and the arts. And it would represent the human attempt to cultivate order, perfection, and connection in the universe. Artists see the world differently, and scientists think about the world differently. And the thought that emerged to me here was, uh, have you ever seen the Overton window? Where it mm-hmm. talks about, you know, the, I don't know if I can do this justice, but there's a... Uh, window i guess that most people have on reality and there's certain things that are kind of at the edge of it like we could probably throw quantum mechanics there today most people don't understand at the quantum level causality doesn't exist like it's all probabilistic and 
time. Right. Like there's all these weird things that we wouldn't normally. You can't see. know all properties of the system at the same at, at the time. Like it's, yes. it's just nutty. Yeah. So I think you're making the point there, which is which is a nice connection that artists and scientists are really kind of doing the same thing, just in a different way, and that they're learning this the- from. Yeah, like I, I think I learned this from studying Da Vinci. It's like this guy was literally probably the best engineer of his era, but mm. also one of the most beautiful, talented artists mm. that his work went into creating a lot of the medieval anatomy textbooks. Because what I, I believe, and I haven't found the original source for this, but it's rumored that the Catholic Church wouldn't allow you to do cadavering of, of humans after they oh, had died. Like you, that's right. So yeah. you couldn't study anatomy. That's, yeah. you know, or at least if they couldn't do it, it was frowned upon. I don't know the technicals of this, but yeah. it was, you know, eventually people started doing this again. And then we learned a lot about anatomy in that process. And um, yeah, so he, he was just but like, I don't as a as a modern person, I don't have a way to label him because he wasn't a scientist. He, right. he and he wasn't just an artist. Like how many artists you know are that are engineers, right? Like yeah. we're so fractioned off in modern society, and it, it's like you know the amount of times that I have to make the joke about like oh autism and stuff, and it's like because everyone who's really technical is they're so analytical, mm. and everyone who's really artsy rejects anything remotely mm. analytical, yeah. and it's almost like we have these personality archetypes that are so distinct, and you're not allowed to be. A, a mixture of both because there isn't a place for you like yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't fit into the economic cog of society anywhere like what would you what role would you have and except for maybe like you can kind of squeeze entrepreneur into that but like that's really tight i don't know i don't know yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs that are doing painting and sketching you know what i mean like, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, it's just so not I guess enough free time those are the renaissance men or people right that we def- the, these eclectically talented do you think that's a product of economic specialization? It's like we've just become so much more sophisticated that you have to focus on a smaller and smaller well, piece. Maybe the actual, like the the more accurate thing would be like the dominant hierarchy thing, right? It's like, wh- how can men achieve status? Okay, they can't, they're not going to achieve status by painting pretty pictures, generally speaking, unless mm. like, unless that's like literally the one thing that you're doing and you go to like raves and then you print, you know what I mean? Like, and then you have an Instagram account, but it's, mm. Um, it's really challenging. Like I think back in those days, it, that was a way to achieve status. It was mm-hmm. every cultured man must know an art, right? You must mm-hmm. know how to play an instrument and you, and especially women, like you must know how to draw or how to paint. Mm-hmm. And that was esteemed. And that meant that you were part of society. And like now part of now to become part of society, you just, you go to college, you get the credentials, you get the second credentials. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, like, I'm always suspicious and tying this back to the money in one way or another, like how much credentialism has been driven by the fiat currency complex. Um, where you see yeah. things like, like Keynesian economic, I was reading uh, a thesis the other day, a Keynesian economic thesis. And like, they just, they mathematize everything, but their, their underlying assumptions are so broken that the whole, like, it's a very, eloquently written thesis is 90 pages long. It's got all these formulas in it, but it's like your, your fundamental paper. assumption <laughs> that you can quantify demand, you know, in this way, like it doesn't work. So great white paper is still a shit coin. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, I think that is true. It's really hard to pin though. Um, I mean, certainly the whole, you can go to debt, you can, you can take on debt to get the credential. That's, that's definitely just, pressing the gas to the issue. Right. And like 
but culturally, the fact that we've accepted, you know, you taking three units of an art class as being remotely similar to like actually knowing how to produce a beautiful painting. Right. Like that's just, that's just on us. Yeah. I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, I, I don't know enough about how people, uh, earned a living back then to, mm. to, to say how much of it is contributing by, by fiat. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like there's this other book I read about the philosophy of money, and it makes the point that the trade-off we get by distilling everything down to the price is we get massive data compression. So you're like, I know what a thing is. It's $80, right? You don't need to know much else about what happened behind it. But the trade-off is you then tend to reduce everything to a number. So you're giving up qualitative perception for quantitative perception in a way. And it seems like in the universities, that kind of just became the thing. It's like, here's the course you want to get through in the top 10% of your, like everything's metric driven, data driven, number driven, but the qualitative, like in philosophy, for instance, if you go to university for philosophy, no one wants you to philosophize, really. They want you to study all the dead philosophers, be able to recite their ideas, pass the test, and then go get your job at Starbucks or whatever it is. Like, um, And so we lose that. We lose that whole element of ourselves of our humanity um i don't know interesting to think about i think a lot of it as much as i would like to pin it on money i i keep coming back to this part of the book where i talk about uh the the double entry accounting and how it wasn't created by this guy uh luca pacelli this friar in in uh i think it's like the 1500s in florence or whatever Mm. but this 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 religious scholar basically is also running businesses and then He's not the one who creates the idea of double entry accounting, but he's the first one to really popularize it. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to read as much of the original source on this, luckily, like I, it, but it, it's in a book where the whole book is a, it's a math textbook and there's only one chapter that's on accounting. Mm. So it's kind of like, who's the audience? I, like the, the best I've been able to figure is that it probably was for students, but the, I've, I would love to read the full book, but no one's translated the full book. So I can only read the one chapter and the, the one chapter is his chapter on double entry accounting. Um, but like when you, when you see like uh, when you actually get the feel for how this man was, like he took his religion so seriously that on every accounting book that he had, and he had to balance like three different books in order to make the system work. Like it was always like the sign of the cross and like a prayer over it. Wow. And like th- this idea of ethics and it being embedded into the monetary system and beauty being embedded into the things that we produce, like mm-hmm. somewhere in the Protestant Reformation, like we lost that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's not necessarily to blame anyone. It's just, it's just what seems self-evident. And it's, yeah. it's probably partially because of that reducing everything to a price thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, we were so focused on the, on the reducing everything to a price and efficiency. Like, mm-hmm, of course, mm-hmm. capitalism is efficient. We, no one can deny that, um, that we've, we've lost the art and things and, and art is inefficient because mm-hmm. you know, that's not what it's about. You know, to right. build a beautiful building is not about efficiency. To build a building that lasts hundreds of years has nothing to do with right. efficiency, Right. Uh, but it has to do with like having a life worth living. Yes. Um, yeah, I hope in the citadels we can we'll have this discussion and the architects can input more thought into actually how we build buildings in the future yeah, because yeah. you know going to places like Canada where they don't have any no offense to the Canadians but it's like it's just everything is just so plain. Yeah. 
Like it's all built just for just just copy paste the entire yes, book. Same yes, height. Yes. Yeah. Like, a lot of that, yeah. yeah, a lot of the architecture you see post-1971 is like that too. And yeah, for all the marvels of efficiency, there there's a trade-off there too, right? You lose like super efficient systems don't really have uh, fail safes and fallbacks. So they tend to be more fragile. And then that's on a, on a numeric basis or a quantitative basis, but on a qualitative basis, they're just ugly typically, right? They're just stripped down bare bones. And there's something about that. Jordan Peterson talks a lot about the nature of beauty and how it, you know, it's soul sustaining. There's something there that that we get we get a window into the transcendent or something like that and you know this if you go to and it's it's interesting because europe where this is very evident right they've built these giant beautiful 300 year cathedrals and there's just yeah, so and much you can't build anything there. new because there's all this old beauties yes to kind of stay frozen in time which is inefficient but it ends right. up being, I mean, people pilgrimage to Europe to go see this stuff. It's a huge economic right. boon forever, basically. These buildings stand forever and everyone wants to go Profit see them. Profit off beauty. Yes, yeah, that's true. So it's, yeah. we've gotten, I don't know, we like we over, tried to over-engineer ourselves or nature or something. And there's been a big loss resulting from that. Uh, speaking- I think, yeah, just to, to bring it back to the Bitcoin thing too, I think one of the things that's unique about looking at Bitcoin as a system is it made me feel the same way as like looking at, you know, some beautiful architecture, right? Mm-hmm. You're just like, how much thought went into this system? Everything is so well, like the, the, si- the size of the transactions, like the efficiency of, it was like, it, for a modern person, you're like, look at this thing that's efficient and it, it balances like, 30 different things, yes. right? So it's not only efficient, but it's, it, it's just like a, it's the most beautiful, efficient thing that I can point to. Yes. Whereas like most efficient things, it's just not that exciting. Yeah. Um, what, well, I shouldn't great, say that because yeah. yeah. This is a great, it's funny. You bridged me right to the next excerpt in your book, which is excellent. You said, quote, I see Bitcoin as a system. And as with any good technological system, its goal should be to strengthen our connections as a small part of a larger connected whole. So I think this is a great instance of you tying in the systems thinking lens, which is very analytical and rational, but you're tying it back to the philosophical beauty side of it. It's like, if the thing is going to function well, it should make us part of this integrated whole. And like, not only should it function that way, but it should feel that way and appear that way. And, you know, there's, there's beauty in, in Bitcoin. And I guess you could say, if you've ever seen the supply formula for Bitcoin, which I'm sure you have, it's just this little mathematical, yeah, a little mathematical formula, uh, you know, it shows a having every 210,000 blocks. Am I saying, is that the right number? I'm not sure. And it just, uh, you know, 21 million hard cap. So there's, it reminds me of looking at E equals MC squared. There's some elegance and simplicity there that is it almost invokes the same type of feeling as if you're looking at a beautiful painting or landscape there's just something one of the things that i like to think about is like what is um like the difference between what is discovered and what is created mm. and i feel like this mm. boundary of like science and art like i should say the boundary but where they intersect like 
is like, did we create the concept of zero or did we discover the concept of zero? Right. Yes. And it, it, if you were to ask someone this question, it would say more about them than it would about the actual thing that we're right. asking. You know what I mean? Yes. Because you're saying, are you left-brained or are you right-brained? And, you know, a kind of broken mental model. But um, yeah, like when, when it goes to like EMP equals MC squared, like that was something that was in my mind that was discovered. But then when you look at Bitcoin and you say this 21 cap and the scarcity, it's sort of both, right? Because it's it's certainly true that, people value scarcity yeah. and like then we create the dig the digital representation of, of that yes um so yeah, yeah it, it's just it's just mind-blowing at a couple of different levels there I, I love that you brought up zero because it's one of my favorite it's the closest analogy i think i found for how big of a deal bitcoin is it's like when we figured out zero it changed effing everything um, <laughs> right. but it's it is it's unclear to your point, whether it was an invention or a discovery, because are numbers real? I mean, are they? I, who, I don't, what do you mean by real? Um, certainly numerals, which are like our symbolic representation for number, that's something we invented, right? One, two, three, four, right. whatever that is. And so zero in that sense was just an invention. Someone figured it out. But when you trace it back, uh, the, it, was, it came from an Indian mathematician named Brahmagupta, I think his name was. And he says he discovered zero in meditation. It was the experience of shunyata, yeah. which means nothingness, right? It's to transcend duality and be in this place of no time, no space. That's where he found or discovered zero. That's beautiful. And then he just represented it with the numeral zero. And then it's like, okay, crazy meditating guy like use whatever numbers <laughs> you want but then that numeral system conquers the world because it gives us right you know uh, and it takes hundreds calculus. of years because the indians yeah. didn't have paper yeah right? <laughs> like the muslims have to conquer them with the paper and it's like when you look at like the spiritual experience and then you look at like how the meat space interaction like how to actually trans how do you propagate information in meat space it's like yes. people have to conquer other people Yes. And then discover this thing like written on a rock and then ask all the locals, like, what is this zero? Yes. And like, oh, that's useful. And then you finally get someone who's open-minded and willing to adopt it. And yes. not until they get conquered, do then we adopt. It's like, right. it's almost like the wars have like, it's like something beautiful could come out of the wars. You know, yes. it's like we're, we're progressing humanity towards the understanding of the knowledge of zero and yeah. spreading that knowledge. Yes. And yeah. And it's, as people awaken to the benefits it affords them, right? Specifically with zero, you could just do calculation faster, easier, cheaper, more accurate, right? It was a better psychotechnology at the end of the day. Right. The placeholder was great. The people that adopted place, it yeah. outcompeted those that did not. And at the end of the day, here we are. We all use zero. So it's like the same thing. I don't know if it's the same thing. I argue that it's similar to Bitcoin and that everyone wants 0% inflation money. Clearly, <laughs> who doesn't want money that doesn't fucking steal from them? It's obvious. Excuse, excuse my French. Um, and people will just voluntarily adopt it. And those that adopt it will outcompete those that do not through a similar process as gold monetized. And that's it. That's the whole game. You know, that's how Bitcoin eats the world in a nutshell, just like zero. So. It's, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long it took for the actual adoption of zero, but hopefully it's faster for Bitcoin. Yeah, it was a bumpy road for a few hundred years, but the information systems were much less interconnected back then. Much slower, true. you know. 
Uh, okay, I want to do another excerpt here. You just had so many lines in your book. I was highlighting like crazy. Um, okay, tying it back to art and science, you said, unlike other explanations of Bitcoin, which can read like a dry textbook explanation of the protocol, I view Bitcoin as both an art and a science. There's a science to know how it works and an art to seeing the beauty in it. And that that's a great line encompassing your book, I think, because you really get to the science of Bitcoin throughout, but you're, you, I don't know how much effort you put into editing and proofreading this, but it's displayed in a very artful way. And that, that sentence is a great example of that. So, yeah, I mean, I'll just tell people a little bit about the process, but like I said, I was interested in Bitcoin uh, because of economic reasons. Like I just was interested, I was very liberty minded and I had this very narrow view of like what I thought sound money was. And like, it wasn't until I started working in the space, uh, specifically working alongside some of the core devs and like the lightning devs at Blockstream that I started to see the way they thought was very different than the way I thought because they had, they had my operating system for sure. But then they also had all these other layers that I had no knowledge of. Mm. And this is, I, I have this towards the end of the book, but like the concept of like the unknown unknowns, right? Like mm-hmm. I would have never known that I was missing this level of understanding because like, what am I going to do? Google it. Like Google, tell me all the things I don't know about Bitcoin. That'll make it beautiful. Like that, you know what I mean? Like that's just, you can't, you can't do that. So it wasn't until I had that human inter- interaction with people who were like putting their lives, investing it into developing the thing at the time, there was like no money in that as well. Right. So right. that I started to understand like, oh, there's like the security aspect of imp- of systems is beautiful. Like yeah. that, that's the, honestly God, the way that I think about it. And to, for sure, if I said this to them, they would think that I'm nuts because they don't, they're, they don't think like this yeah. at all, at all. They think very analytical, but yeah. it's just like melding the way I think with the way I think, you know, I, my rough understanding of the way developers think, um, and then packaging that in a way that is like not Bitcoin for dummies at all, but is like Bitcoin for people who want to see the beauty in it and who are like actually intelligent in a different lane of life, you know, like one of the biggest problems I had with all the Bitcoin explanations I was seeing is like, not only is it overly analytical, but it either dumbs it down or it's like way too complex. Mm. It's like, where's the middle ground? And I think Mm. the middle ground is combining like, you know, analogies, uh, systems that you already understand, bringing in like real world examples and, Mm -hmm. you know, gosh, the, I'm not an artist, but part of the process that I had for writing the book was I was determined to never use uh, a a visual that had already been used because all of the, all of the visuals to explain things like UDXOs, they're taken from like the literal BIP, like the Bitcoin improvement Mm -hmm. protocol, and then included in the explanation that's meant for a non-technical audience. Like it's so not helpful. So anytime I had an idea of like, Oh, this is the way I'll explain this. I would sketch it out on note cards and it would just look like garbage, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I met this guy at my local coffee shop who was just like making these beautiful little like pencil sketches of rivers and like whales. And I was like, Hey, like, do you think you want to sketch out this book for me and just like make my drawings better? Um, And that worked out great. So like, yeah, the book is super illustrated and I hope that it really is a, a combination of science and art because I, I tried to get this artist to like understand what it was I was trying to explain in the diagram. And then he just like turned it up a notch. Wow. That's so much. He doesn't, he doesn't do technical shit at all. He doesn't yeah. do technical drawings for anything else. Yeah. The, the, the illustrations are gorgeous. I mean, they're, they're simple. They're elemental. They're even like you were talking about the knowns and the unknowns and you use the yin yang symbol. Right. And you describe how the, 
the different components of it. And that, I mean, that resonates with me a lot. Um, so I think, I mean, clearly I came into it as a reader that considers himself pretty, I understand Bitcoin pretty well. I mean, I've read a ton about it and studied it a lot. I still just enjoyed it. I just enjoyed the process of reading the book because it was put together in an aesthetic, digestible form. So what you mentioned your writing process. I do want to talk to you about that because I think you've probably got some good pointers for people like me and maybe a lot of others. What did you do? How did you do it? What was your rhythm? Yeah. So um, I mentioned the note cards and I think that was probably the key to it. Well, I think, so I have like two different books that I want to write. And every time I have an idea for the book, I just jot a note down like in like Evernote or I shoot it to my email or something like that. So these aren't index um, cards. These are well, software. so when, for, for years, I draft the book through just scattered notes. Right. Okay. And then when I decide to actually make it a book, like, okay, I'm going to start writing now, then everything gets put into note cards. Okay. And then once I have all the note cards, then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to be a writer instead of just like a note taker. <laughs> and then that's when I start to like have a, a like, you have to get, you know, you, you wake up early, you, you set a time yeah. and then you just commit to writing a certain amount of words per day. And you understand that they're going to be garbage. Yes. Like it's just total garbage. And you accept that and you try it. Cause I'm a very judgmental person. Like I have a hard time uh, turning down my judgment. Uh, so it, it's, it, it can be really hard to write and edit at the same time. Like I don't Impossible. recommend it. So yeah. Exactly. Whatever you have to do to turn that judgmental part of your brain off. And for me, it's like waking up early. So I only have the energy to, to do one thing. So yeah. you try and write in a non-judgmental way using the note cards. Cause the note cards allow you to like put the book in order and that mm. laying out the book in order is maybe one of the most important parts. Mm. Um, yeah. And then I try and write and then you spend twice as long as you spent writing on editing and then mm. it comes out less bad than when you started. <laughs> so, wow. That's, that's hopefully the goal. That's and then your editing process, that's just you personally refining your own writing. Yeah. So I did a little bit of co like editing. Like I asked people to edit and you know, when people are doing you favors, it's probably best that you don't ask them to edit a whole book. So I think in the future, <laughs> I'm just going to ask particular people to edit particular chapters. Yeah. And um, you know, there's a whole bunch of problems with having people edit your book because they change your language. They change your style. They don't like little things. And like, I like my writing to sound like the way that I talk. I don't want it to sound like the way like Ben over in like BD talks, you know what I mean? Right, like, because right, right. it, it, it changes the tone. So, um, but I mean, it, it's always good to have feedback and people will tell you things that I think are, are useful. They're asking them to edit your book for a reason. So I did that. And then after I had like a collaborative editing session with some people that I thought would be, would have good feedback. Um, then I sent it to like a proper editor who he was allowed to critique my style and that was fine. Gotcha. Okay. But, um, I don't know. Writers are, writers are particular, you know, <laughs> tell me about it. Um, what, how was your, the total time? So you spent like a six months notes, three months writing, six months editing. Like what did that look like? Yeah, I think that was, a, I think it was like a little over a year. Okay. The whole thing. A little over a year. I was writing that from like 20, like the 2017, 2018 kind of time. And then yeah. I kind of pushed it out in 2019. And then I try and redo and edit and update the book 
um, pretty regularly because there's some things that will get changed and I'm like, oh, I don't want the book to be technically wrong. So then I'll like go back <laughs> and change it. It's like, I know during COVID, they like changed the fractional reserve banking requirements. So like instead of 10%, it went to zero. And I was like, oh, I awesome. now this makes my book inaccurate. So I have to go back. Or like when all the miners are pushed out of China, like I still have to make that update. Uh, that's just the analytical side of me. You don't want to be technically wrong, but yeah, it's, it's, that's not really the stuff that matters, right? It's the, the overarching points that, that matter. All right. So let's jump in to Bitcoin as a clock, which I think this is a very uh, important way for understanding Bitcoin actually. Um, So I'll read an excerpt here. You said, A clock is a system that is regulated by its internal structure to keep time. The blockchain is a clock that's regulated by its blocks to keep time. It's because of this system of self-regulating timestamps that Bitcoin possesses its own internal sense of time. So I think it's very profound maybe to, to understand, but this idea of creating your own time it like it, it marches by the beat of its own drum almost. And that's what it's it, because it's independent of every other time keeping factor in the world. It sort of forces everyone to um, march by the beat of its drum over time. Uh, and one other, I'll, I'll mention this too, where you tied this in historically, you said out of either ignorance or corruption and disputes between churches, more than a few Roman politicians added days to the calendar to extend their rule. Considering the average lifespan of a democracy is only 200 years, the Western world is overdue to overturn this cycle of democracy. Historically, inaccurate timekeeping has been a measure of incompetence and corruption. And with the invention of Bitcoin, we have a way of keeping time that relies on no one and trusts no one. So it really, I mean, this idea of, you know, money and time, this connection between them is very, uh, very deep. And this idea of, of power as well, I think was an interesting one to tie in that rulers have actually manipulated our timekeeping systems to their own benefit. But in Bitcoin, we have an incorruptible time system. It's legendary. It's legendary. And like when, when I go back to the, to the origins of, of what the calendar is. It was originally called the calendrum, I believe, but maybe I'm obviously pronouncing it wrong, totally butchering it, right? But the idea was, is it was the ledger in which you stored the dates for payments. So like in the original calendar, there were always dates for payments. And then we abstracted that and made the calendar mm. just like this plain thing where you could put like where you go to the gym on it. But like, that's not, it, it was always linked to payments in, in, from a historical standpoint. And then- yeah, from the Roman senators extending their rule by adding days to like random months. And it took Julius Caesar coming in and saying, okay, like I'm going to play dictator and clean house a little bit. Like it, it, it took that moment in order to clean up the calendar. And obviously we don't have problems like that in the calendar now, but um, there's all kinds of different schemes that go along with, with, with messing with time. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, a really underrated part of Bitcoin's level of security. Like it goes, it's so, it's the developers of Bitcoin have thought about security to the extent that it literally does not trust any third party sense of time, which right off the bat is not true for basically any other blockchain because they, there's a lot of problems when you, um, when you speed up the block time, it means that you end up 
um, having to check that third-party sense of time more often because it's impossible to have a really distributed system. Um, uh, gosh, if, if it, when, when people read the book, it's a little bit easier to explain, but basically like because the nodes are distributed all over the world, it takes literal time to propagate that information and the, the, the perfect number, at least, you know, right now with current technology is about 10 minutes for block time. And that's what was chosen for Bitcoin. Yeah. It's just, if you, if you go faster than that, it means that you, you have to check an out, um, a second party source of time, which is then, you know, a centralized point of failure or some sort of corruptible thing that could basically wreck your payment system. And mm-hmm. by wreck, I mean, uh, not allow you to put payments in order. Like that would be bad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's so such a. I didn't know that about the origins of calendar of the calendar, but I, when I was looking for a comparison to Bitcoin to try to describe how profound of an innovation it is, calendar was one that I evaluated because it's mm. it too is a social construct, kind of like money, but it's a very important technology, and then money itself too has kind of this uh, timekeeping function in a way. If you look at you know, like the proof of work associated with gold. Um, you know, we, we knew the supply could not increase over a given percent over a given time, or right. we had high assurances. So it was, and it, and then money itself is like a reflection of our time in a way. It's like, how much, how much productivity have you added to the marketplace? You've been rewarded in money. And then that money can be used to claim the time of others to, as, a, as a claim. That's right. Not a claim. Someone corrected me on this earlier as a call option effectively on that productivity. <laughs> not It's not a legally binding thing, but you can use it to redeem the productivity from the market. So there's this deep relationship between money and time. Um, and hence you- the reason to, or the, the incentive to try to control either. This is also why usury was considered such a condemnable thing, right? Is because if money is a reflection, if, if money is stored time, not even just mm-hmm. stored value, but just stored time, like a laborer's time mm-hmm. in a physical form that they can then redeem, right? Mm-hmm. Like if that's what the purpose of money was from an ethical, at the ethical level, then to profit off of it without investing any time would obviously be corrupt, right? right? So now it's like when we look at when we, when we go back to the issue of capitalism, it's like, obviously, I think capitalism is good and has many positive things, but I think it, you'd have to be blind to ignore some of the negative things, which is like, you know, this whole number go up mentality is like, what can I buy where number go up and I don't actually have to invest any time in it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that would be, I'm not necessarily condemning people for doing that because it's in their best interest, mm-hmm. but it just shows like the degradation of societal values. It's like, all of the tools that we have to make money that require you invest time in them are bad. They're not in your interest. Like it is, it's, it's good for you to invest in things that don't require your time. And there's so many options like that available, but it is a bit, it feels a bit dirty. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. I just capture value in that way. Yeah. To capture you know, a call option on time when you're not investing any time, right? There's, there seems to be something asymmetric there. I did talk to one guy. Uh, he was, he's a Middle Eastern guy and he knew, you know, usury is condemned in the Quran mm-hmm. as well. But he made the point that that presupposed a hard money standard. So when someone borrowed from you and, you know, they borrowed gold 
presumably, and they paid you back in gold, there tended to be this implicit interest rate built into it because, you know, if an yeah. economy is advancing two or 3% a year on average, then you know, clearly this is not a universal rule. This is just kind of a tendency that money tends to appreciate in tandem with the productivity growth, right? Again, if money's a call option on all the capital, then the, as a the capital stock and the economy grows, the money appreciates a little bit. So he was just making the point that there was this implicit or this implied interest rate, this implied yield on borrowing and hard money. And that's why they forbade usury on top of that. But clearly when you get into fiat money, that that's not the case at all. Like the money, it's actually the opposite, right? You need to charge. If you're going to have a profitable borrowing business, you need to charge very high interest rates to cover the inflation plus. Right. It's like, I don't even know what you call what's happening now. Like, I don't know if you call it usury because it's like interest rates are low. Right. It's like, it's like, like literally it's just like, fake money and i don't that's not exactly the same thing as usury so it it it, it, if you are willing to expand your definition of usury then this is almost like this would be a worse sin in my mind yes right but that's not the way that it was talked about in in a historical sense so yeah it's i mean i don't know i i you you enjoy thinking about the ethical issues of of money right and Mm -hmm. this is one that i've struggled with is like okay so we have this like more ethical form of money but it also has these weird properties of like you don't actually have to do like you don't have to do anything of value to make money off of it you just have to be alive and like have a pulse and then be lucky and 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 take a bet on this thing and that's why you can see like in the you know people people who like to talk about the ethics of money kind of we people like us it maybe we don't um readily point out the fact that there's like a bunch of people who don't treat Bitcoin that way. Like I'm not articulating myself clearly. What I'm saying is like, there's so many people who just buy Bitcoin, not because it's ethical money, but because it's just number go up. Of course. Right. And like, that's actually probably the loudest portion of the community. Mm -hmm. So it's, it can be challenging to, um, to, to propagate this information out because, you know, we're, we're competing, competing with a money printer who owns like all, all of the the journalists on this matter. I mean, how many journalists do you know that are getting paid in Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, humans going to human, I guess, as you might say. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's also like, it's, there's no absolutes. There's not like someone buys an ethical money and all of a sudden they're an ethical, perfect human. There's, there's all these, this confluence of factors thrown at us all the time. And really you could argue the number go up of Bitcoin is really just a reflection of dollar go down largely. I mean, granted, it's not yes. just that. Yeah. It's not just dollar go down. It's also people saying, clearly, this is a better tech. I'm going to use this. Um, but, it, you know, we, we still face these or, or we still are exposed to the influences of the dollar and the fiat system, right? We, t- we I'm in this Bitcoin and Bible book club and we talk a lot about this. It's like, Okay, is taking a, you know, the for instance, the US government's been throwing out all these loans to everyone that has a pulse over the past year, right? Small business mm-hmm. loans, this loan, that loan. Okay, is it unethical to take that loan? I mean, it's basically free money. Some of it is actually free money. They're like, you know, fill out this loan application and then fill out the loan forgiveness. And then that's that. You just benefited directly from the teat of the US government, Federal Reserve banking system. Um, 
it's just murky, you know, like where do you draw the line? Um, you know, another thing Bitcoiners really want to condemn people for shit coining. It's like, okay, how many of you guys use dollars? <laughs> I mean, you're, well, you're all I, shit coining. <laughs> I've always thought like, well, I mean, to have a shit, to, to make money off of a shit coin, to buy more Bitcoin, like it's literally the way most of the mining operates, right? Is like, oh, that like there's some software that's optimized for mining whatever the most profitable shitcoin in that moment. And then like on the back end, like that's exchanged for Bitcoin. Like mm. to say that that's unethical, like there's this really great play by, I think it's like, it was, I think it was the first play by George Bernard Shaw, but I can't remember what it's called. And like mm. the whole premise of the play was there's this, this guy who's the landlord who's owning this like disheveled building. And then there's like the ethical guy who who's like way above it. And then he finds out that he owns like a share in that, that that business or whatever so he's technically an owner of this like disheveled building and he's been living off of the stipend or you know whatever payout and the whole the, it's so interesting because um people will go into that play and see totally different things like some people will go into that play and say like oh well capitalism is this horrible like unethical thing and like i go into it and i and i see like systems are so complex that it's actually unreasonable to to, to attempt to reason about certain things like mm. something like the, the the taintedness of your money or the taintedness of how you're earning an income because it's just the economy so intertwined. It's like we're all participating in this this culture. Yeah. And I don't know how we dial it back. <laughs> like it's yes. really easy to criticize modern culture, but like how do you change it? And maybe we're trying to do that with Bitcoin to some extent and trying to see beauty in things, but how do we take it to the next level? Yeah. Well, it's uh it's a rabbit hole in and unto itself. And when you consider, you know, why the U S dollar is the U S dollar, right. For a number of reasons, world war two being one of them, Bretton woods being one of them, the fact that it was once redeemable for gold, there was a bait and switch on it. Like there's all this history of fraud, deception, violence, like baked right into your money. You can't mm -hmm. ignore it or erase it. And then it's like, you're, Part, you're playing a part in that whether you want to admit it to yourself or not like you go to the store and put a five dollar bill on the counter and buy your coffee like you're still partaking in that you were contributing to the reservation demand for the u.s dollar that enables the entire system to operate so it's not like a fun thought to have but it is real and i guess to your point it's very tricky to disentangle ourselves from the complexity of all of this it's like we're wrapped up in things in a lot of different ways that we hardly understand. That's right. And then when we're, that's like when you're looking from the present into the past, but like then when you look into the present going into the future, it's like a whole set of other issues. Like one of the things that's blown my mind about the way the book, the Bitcoin Clarity Book was received was a lot of people really like the chapter on governance, mm -hmm. which is like, I mean, the, the content that's in that book is like, I try and compare the way uh, laws are produced in our democratic republic and then compare mm -hmm. that to like how uh, code changes are made in not just Bitcoin, but like any open source code base. Like the, the process is somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I talk about a couple of different things there, like the legislative angle. And but but in particular, I talk about how like this this technology called the blockchain is a way to have immutable data like. Like, that's it. That's the end of sentence. Th this blockchain is a way to have immutable data. And we yeah. don't actually know the implications of all of that. Yes. Like, 
I, uh, I love to keep, uh, I love to play around with as much AI as I can, like the stuff that's actually like available to the public. And it's like officially good now. Like the AI is, is now really, really good. It, two years ago, I would have told you it was garbage. And like now it's amazing. For a whole month, I had it, I had the like GPT-3, which people may or may not be familiar with, but GPT-3 is just like this text-based kind of AI neural network thing where you you give it an input and then you stipulate what form you want the output in and it'll give it back to you. So I had this AI thing, like read all my tweets and then produce more tweets. And then I would tweet all the tweets that the AI tweeted and like nobody knows the difference. <laughs> like it's provable. Yeah. And like everyone thinks that that's me. And it's just like Bitcoin ramblings and like random philosophical thoughts about the nature of the universe, like whatever. And like, yeah, I thought they were so good. It's like, whatever, I'll post that. And it's it was such an interesting experiment because it's like, okay, now AI is so good. That jump from GPT-2 to GPT-3 is so big that like GPT-2 was allowed to be used publicly. And then GPT-3 is like not. Like you have to be an academic or like a government or China or wow. something. Like you have, you have to... Yeah. So like you can't, it's really challenging to get access to it now, but I played around with it for a little bit while when it was first like new and the amount of content that you could create, like I could just spin up like thousands of people with a quote unquote opinion instantly. And they would all be in a conversation with each other, with each other and then be evolving the dialogue together. And then you as a real person are sitting on the internet, looking at this conversation, thinking that this is a real thing, but it's just like, you know, like a neural network running on someone's server, like at MIT. And I don't know if we fully understand the implications of this tied to the fact that we have this immutable database thing. Like, I don't know, like I, it's so complex that I can't even walk out how the future will look. You know, like uh, wow. one of the things that blew my mind was I, 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 before I got into Bitcoin, I actually thought I was going to study like neurobiology or something like that. And I was following um, like in the San Francisco biotech was huge in the early 2000s. And then it kind of like didn't deliver on all the promises that we kind of thought we were going to get out of it. But uh, I think it was in, in Japan specifically, they had removed legislation that made it illegal to try and mix the animal and human DNA and like produce, I don't even know what you'd call these things. There's a word for it, but like, who knows what that is. Right. So like the fact that they removed this law to now allow experimenting with creating half human, half other animal concepts. Wow. Um, like, like then you have to assume that they're doing it, right? So it's it, it's like, you look at the cryptocurrency realm, we're still talking about Bitcoin, but it's been like a decade now since Bitcoin was created. And and then it's like, you look at the AI realm, I can't, we, we don't even, it's so scary. They're not even giving that access to the public. And then for the biotech realm, I'm pretty sure it, it's so ethically concerning that, none of that can ever be published ever. Like, like so I, I don't need like whatever, however the scientists are propagating information in that industry, like who knows, right. It's yeah. just backdoor dealings all the way. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's crazy to me. And maybe to, to bring us back to our conversation about like the Protestant reformation and all this stuff, it's like, we're, we're still arguing about like, you know, I don't know, like social media or something totally stupid when like the real fight is like on the edge of like right. what technology allows us to do. And like, all of us are too distracted with like politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Politics. I don't know. It's just crazy, crazy stuff. COVID. Yeah. Right? So it's, that won't be the actual issue when you a hundred years from now, when you're looking at this timeline, like how many, how often do you really, even when you're looking at history, do you even care about the, um, the different, uh, what do you call it? The different, uh, 
pandemics. Like, uh, yeah, the different pandemics that occur. Like it's everyone forgets about the pandemics. You yeah. when you look at World War One, you forget that more people died in the pandemic the Spanish, after that than yeah. World War One. Right. Right. So yes. so maybe this isn't even the real issue. What man, you bring up so many crazy points there. The, this I when we get into AI and the these biological hybrids, I don't even know where that goes. That is just too mind blowing for me to even try and I, I focus on the first thing you said, like this idea of immutable history alone, where if we can now record things with permanence, right, essentially, right? If you, whatever, right. you take this interview that we're doing, if we then put that on a media platform that's built on top of Lightning Network that's anchored to the Bitcoin blockchain, then I guess in theory, that thing is there forever, so long as Bitcoin is there. And maybe I'm overstating the technicals a bit, but. Um, that alone seems to have profound implications. Like what if we could just pull up zoom chats of Plato and Aristotle right now and see what, <laughs> they were, you know, how yeah. different would the world be and how, what, you know, what kind of a psychotechnological update would it be to have something like that available? How much will that technology or psychotechnology technology influence our evolution? That alone completely blows my mind. But then when we start playing God, that is truly scary to me. Um, it reminds me of that quote, humans have prehistoric emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology, something like that. So we're just this, oh, I love it. we're just a mess inside, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> right. Um, so I want to get back to you. There's another great excerpt in your book here, an alternative theory for the evolution of money that there is actually evidence for, and this is contrasting it to barter, I believe is that money is a social technology that evolved out of our moral and selfish desire to track debt. From the ancient accounting tablets of Uruk in Mesopotamia to the tally sticks used in Europe during the Middle Ages, there is a growing body of evidence to support the theory that money evolved as a formal system of reciprocity. And then you go on later to describe the dollar in one of the most epic sentences I've ever read. At worst, the dollar is a promissory note that promises nothing. <laughs> so, uh, I, did you get the? Was this from Graeber's book, Debt Five Thousand Years, where he's arguing that it was debt, not barter, that was the original form of money? I've read a bunch of books, and that was probably the most influential on that topic. Mm. Yeah, that that one for sure. That was a great book. Which makes sense because, like, in a small village we probably started trading IOUs first, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to have a few apples and I'm going fishing later. Like, mind if I pay you back, you know, it just makes sense that people would start trading favors. Yeah. I think, I think a a good way for me to understand it is like, obviously barter existed. Like no one's saying that barter didn't exist, but barter is barter. Barter isn't money. And like, when you start to write down debt, like now you have a record. Yes. And like, that's, that's much closer to what uh, the origin of money than what barter is. Right. And like to say, which comes first is like, well, who really cares? Like who, who cares? Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but to I, your I, point, debt's more scalable, right? Because you can have the, it's informational. You don't barter is right. very not scalable for all the obvious reasons, but debt is just, you're tracking a ledger and then it's how best think, to track the ledger. 
what what frustrates me about the barter school of the evolution of money is like they make it sound as if like people were like oh this barter is really complicated therefore let's create money and like that's mm. not how it happened right, right like right. for sure because like people just aren't that uh i guess intelligent to be honest like it yeah. it, it, it took a lot more effort than that it, it, i yeah. wish it was that simple but it's like not at all yeah yeah, yeah, looking into the tally stick form of money in the Middle Ages is super crazy too. People use all kinds of stuff for money. And but it, I think that the evidence for it coming out of debt is is way stronger than it just like magically arising out of barter. Yeah. And so what then gold fit into that picture as just the, the well, you know, Austrians would say the most saleable good, but um it really was just the instrument that was most widely accepted in the satisfaction of debts in a way. So this is where people get really tangled up in this argument. Well, then, oh, gold's not money. It's just used for satisfying debt. But one of the definitions of money is that which extinguishes debt. So it's it a useless it, conversation. That sounds like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, <laughs> this gets into, there's a bunch of these statist guys that will tell you gold's not money. It's never been money. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, does it satisfy debt? I'm like, yeah, and that's all it's for. I'm like, then there's money. What are we talking about here? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like someone's trying to win an argument. And yeah. I don't think I don't think they're winning anyone over here. A lot of people out there trying to win arguments these days. All right, one more excerpt <laughs> to round us out. So you said that a strong government will always decouple itself from a hard currency because it has to, if not at once, slowly. The currency is devalued with cheaper metals until the money, like dollar bills, it is no longer backed by scarcity at all, but only the full trust that the state and its empire will remain in power. It's, I've described gold in particular this way, that it was the original governor of governments, actually. Like if you misbehaved as a governor, you printed too much money or you abused your people, like gold would flow out of your country or your organization for that matter. Um, and ever since we've, you know, broken that or moved away from that as a monetary system, it's just, it's been a, this rampant, uh, this rampage of irresponsibility, I guess you would say. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, you know, the way that I think about it, I think about everything as a system. And it's like, for me, I look at history and I see all these small states valuing gold because it's sort of a way to prove their trustworthiness and credibility. Mm. And, but the nature of the game is like, once you're the omnipresent government, like when, once you're the, once you're the strongest and most powerful government in the world or like in history, like the Roman empire star, like America has seen, then it's sort of like, why do you need this thing that's holding you back, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the nature of systems is that systems are designed to grow. Mm -hmm. Like every organization's job is to grow. The government's job is to grow. Mm -hmm. Any any libertarian that is trying to use the state to shrink it is doing it like against the nature of the system. That's not right. what systems do. Right. Organizations, like what does every startup try to do? They try and they, they'd sell them to the next round, right? So when you have that understanding in mind, it's like, I don't blame, um, like, I, I guess I don't blame governments for decoupling from gold because it's like, it's, it's literally what has to occur if you're going to grow right. now that that's, that's obviously corrupt and we can criticize that, but like, whose fault is it? Like one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is like, 
it was like Nixon who took took us off the gold standard, right? Yeah. Um, it's like he he was in such a pressed position that he had no choice. So it's yes. kind of like whose fault was it, right? Or it's like if you, if we were to argue about who should be in office, you know, my guy gets in the office over your guy, and he can only achieve like ten percent of the things that he said that he was going to achieve. Well, it's like it, it it's like even when you obtain the highest seat of power in this huge system, you're still totally like handicapped as to like what you can actually do right. because there's no seat in the entire system that allows you to control it in yeah. a way it's like this there's decentralization within the centralization there's no seat of power inside of the u.s that would allow you to completely change the u.s that just right. does not exist yes so we have to just ride the system which is also why there's no culpability of like using the dollar because we sort of feel like well i didn't do it and i can't stop it but everyone says that because yeah. it's true nobody can stop the dollar it's yeah. just it's so big now so, yeah, I think that that's an unfortunately true statement that like, I, I love your the, the way that you think about gold. And um, it's just unfortunate that we don't know how to build systems that are that will never scale. Like, how do we cap political systems and mm -hmm. not allow them to grow any further? I think we tried with America, but I don't think that succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, systems are always trying to overcome their own boundaries. Mm hmm. But, th but these are the, I mean, these constraints at least make them viable initially, right? Like a government needed gold to scale itself into existence. But then when it reaches this critical mass, it wants to cast off the yoke of gold and go a different direction. Yeah. And if you're looking at, if you're looking at the world, not from an ethics point of view, but simply from the point of view of the success of that system, right. it's definitely within its interest to do that. Yes. But it is also inherently corrupt because you're basically right. defrauding the users of the monetary system, right? Everyone's circulating this paper and you're like, Oh, this is as good as gold. And then one day it's not all of a sudden. I guess what I'm realizing in this conversation too, is like for people who think about ethics, there's a tendency to want to, to, to find the origin and put push blame on like, this is when it all went wrong. And these mm -hmm. are the people who did it. But I'm sort of, you know, realizing it's like, it doesn't really work like that. Certainly there are obvious fraudsters and people that are culpable mm -hmm. all the time and, and commit massive amounts of fraud and, and, and should be, you know, imprisoned. But when you look at something as big and complex as the dollar, it's, it's really challenging to do that. Or, yeah. or, or, you know, it's, or the people are just like long dead, you know? So it's like, yeah. so how do you roll it back? Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, agree. I don't think you can pinpoint the blame on any one person or group, but it's like, it sort of happens in these, uh, little incremental encroachments where it's like, oh, this one bank will print more dollars and it has gold in reserve and maybe it represents that it actually has more gold than it does. And the whole thing just snowballs. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the point, I mean, and this is the way I'm thinking of Bitcoin lately, it's like humanity really requires this incorruptible, quote unquote, incorruptible money. Like I know it's probabilistic and it's not perfect, but it's the damn closest thing we've ever had to being incorruptible. I think we require something like that to really get to the next leg of civilization. Otherwise, we're just going to repeat this, you know, boom and bust cycle on top of gold, fighting over it. And um, there's recently this guy on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen him. He's a U.S. Space Force guy. And he's calling Bitcoin a weapons grade war deterrent protocol. So Love he's it. saying that nations 
throughout history have basically been engaging in the proof of work of warfare to determine who owns what property. And that the whole thing is premised on property that can be violently confiscated. So Bitcoin is this new form of non, you know, or confiscation resistant property could upend that whole game. Um, yeah, the only problem is you'd have to get states to 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 use Bitcoin. And I don't know. I don't I don't know if I see it. Maybe, right? Maybe, but when you have the nuclear codes, like what do you even price a Bitcoin? Like imagine you take all the wealth that exists in fiat and then you push that into Bitcoin. Like first off, like how much is Bitcoin worth at that point? Um, I'm pretty sure the ledger security model doesn't hold up under those conditions. So, like, we have to reevaluate the whole security system of. Uh, in in of, what of ways? System. In what ways would the security model break down? Well, it's like okay, so like the average person storing Bitcoin on a ledger. Let's say I don't know. Let's say they have like ten Bitcoin in here. They're rich, right? This person's rich, or they have twenty-one Bitcoin on here. Like, I, maybe how much is that now? That's like not even a million dollars, right? Mm. So. It, once you're storing like, like, I don't even know, like trillions or billions on that little device. Um, I'm pretty sure there are still vulnerabilities to the software if you're physically in, in, in contact with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So now it's just a matter of finding the ledgers. It's like ledger had this, this, uh, Oh, you the, mean the specifically the, the ledger wallet. I thought you were talking about the Bitcoin ledger. No, I just mean the infrastructure, not the actual, like, I mean, the infrastructure around our like key storage specifically, yeah. the chain is good. I'm, 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 I'm sold on the chain being good. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless, I, in, unless, unless in my theoretical problem here, some of the money flows into like, I don't know how, I don't know who the richest person, like the 10 richest people in the world are, but like, maybe they would conceivably have enough money to, to 51% attack the network. If if the if fiat if, if the wealth of fiat is truly very centralized and then we just push that all into Bitcoin, then maybe that would create a like a weakness in it. I, I don't know, but um, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's anyway. interesting. I don't know. Um, well, it just seems like hmm, I don't know, call it an an informed intuition, maybe, but it's like my study of history is we keep breaking the money protocol and that leads to all these you know negative consequences violence and civilizational collapse like we needed some substrate or some foundation that nobody can mess with to get to build a higher civilization to scaffold to something that we haven't done yet and um i hope that is bitcoin <laughs> I hope that when, you know, Bitcoin sees more success and it's already seen that the the existing group of Bitcoiners decides to do something like meaningful and productive with that transfer of wealth. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's definitely been many personal transformations inspired by Bitcoin, but to your earlier point, not everybody treats it that way. So I guess we shall see. We shall see, but it'll be a fun ride. Yeah. Well, Kiara, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Um, if you just want to let the audience know where they can find you and where they can find the book. Yeah, so you can get the book on Amazon. Um, I'd recommend the paperback. I think that's the best formatted version of it. And you can find me on Twitter. I tweet a little bit here and there. I'm doing some YouTube videos every now and then, but um, my DMs are open and I really appreciate 
doing the podcast and just ranting about, you know, beauty, truth, goodness, history, like very meta, very fun. Always, always a good time to talk. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, very much my style. So thanks for that.